This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa giving you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are online on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Kumbero Munjerere. Coming up on the show this hour, the United States donates $92 million to the World Food Program to purchase food for more than 7 million people facing starvation in South Sudan. Polls opened today for Ethiopia's Sidama people to vote on self-determination in a referendum closely watched by other ethnic groups that are also seeking more autonomy. In economics, Zambia's central bank raises the country's benchmark lending rate by 125 basis points. And in sport, world champions spring box to play Scotland and Georgia in home tests in July next year. All this and more coming up on the show. But first, the news with Onel Nzinzi. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. Thank you, Kumbero. At least 12 people have been killed when rebels attacked the town of Beni in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Congolese military intervened in the incident, which was, has caused a great deal of anger. The BBC's Gaios Kuwain. On the streets of Beni, people have been throwing stones at UN vehicles. They are furious that yet again rebels from the Allied Democratic Forces, or ADF, have carried out an attack, killing civilians with machetes. There have been several similar attacks over the last week in the Beni region. The ADF targets civilians in order to punish people who they say are cooperating with the army. The Congolese army has recently started deploying on its own and says it has killed dozens of ADF rebels. Leader of Zimbabwe's opposition movement for democratic change, Nelson Chamisa, has described the bitting of his supporters by police in the capital Harare as the behavior of a collapsing regime. He said it was further proof that President Emerson Nangagwa's government was scared of the people. The BBC's Shanghai Nyoka reports. Scores of supporters had gathered outside the opposition's headquarters where leader Nelson Chamisa was due to give an address on the state of the nation. More than a dozen police dispersed them violently, indiscriminately beating up supporters and injuring several. The opposition has accused Mr. Mnangagwa of clamping down on dissenting voices in a deepening economic crisis. On Sunday, he defended his record, saying his administration has opened up political and media spaces. But police have routinely banned or violently broken up the MDC gatherings. A Tanzanian court has postponed for the eighth time the hearing of a prominent journalist arrested in July in a case his lawyers and right groups say is a politically motivated one. Police arrested Dar es Salaam-based Eric Kabendera in July and charged him in August with leading organized crimes, failing to pay taxes and money laundering. His lawyers reject the charges and his trial has not begun. At each of the eight hearings since August, prosecutors have told the court that investigations were not complete. Under President John Magufuli, who took office in 2015, government has shut newspapers and websites as well as arrested opposition leaders and restricted political rallies. 
Russia has condemned a series of Israeli airstrikes on dozens of targets in Syria. Their targets belong to the Syrian government and its Iranian allies. The Kremlin says such attacks are completely against international law. Israel says the strikes are a response to a rocket fired from an Iranian unit in Syria. The BBC's Barbara Platt Asher has more. Israel has carried out hundreds of air and missile strikes on targets linked to Iran in Syrian territory, but this was one of the broadest attacks to date. Unusually, the Israelis not only publicly confirmed the operation, but sent out a map of the sites they hit. Military spokesmen said there were dozens, including weapons depots and command centers. Most of them were around Damascus, which they said was the origin of the rocket fire at Israel on Tuesday. And finally, a convicted internet fraudster is being investigated again in Nigeria for allegedly masterminding a mega scam from a maximum security prison. Anti-corruption officials say Hope Olusegun Arokes used a network of accomplices for the fraud. He was arrested in 2012 and has been serving a 24-year sentence at the Kirikiri Maximum Security Prison. But a preliminary investigation has found that against standard practice, Arokes still had access to the internet and his phone. He had also been admitted to a hospital in Lagos for an, an undisclosed ailment and had been able to leave the facility to stay in hotels, meet with his family and attend social functions. Arake was also able to open two bank accounts and buy a luxury car and homes during the, his time in prison. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African From an perspective. Thank you, Onele, for that news update. It is six minutes after five Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest with me, Kumbero Mujerere, here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. The United States has donated $92 million to the World Food Programme to purchase food for more than 7 million people facing starvation in South Sudan after crops in their farms in their farms were destroyed by unusual heavy rain and floods James Shimajula takes up the story The United States Agency for International Development in short USAID an independent agency of the United States government has donated $92.5 million to the World Food Program to buy food and other essential requirements for more than 7 million people, half of South Sudan's population facing starvation. Since South Sudan became an independent nation in July 2011, USAID has increased humanitarian assistance and support for fundamental human needs including access to water, health, and education services. Leslie Reed, director of USAID mission in South Sudan, sheds light on the United States donation. This $92.5 million in funding is helping a USAID partner, World Food Program, not only respond to the urgent needs in flood-affected areas, but for the lean season and for pre-positioning in 2020. Of the 32 counties, flood-affected counties, 24 of those, which is about 40%, are experiencing food insecurity. Leslie Reed 
sums up factors that prompted the U.S. aid to respond to South Sudan government appeal for help. They are responding in terms of food assistance, nutrition, life-saving medical assistance, emergency shelter, safe drinking water, and protection for vulnerable communities. Perhaps it may be fitting to bring to light the fact that South Sudan has vast tracts of fertile land that lies idle and is not used to grow crops due to, as I said moments ago, armed conflict that has killed more than 20,000 people, according to United Nations estimates. Already, over 2 million people have died in the conflict that pits troops loyal to South Sudan President Salva Kiir and his principal political and military rival, Riek Machar. Machar and Kiir were expected to form an inclusive government of national unity, but failed to do so three times due to the fact that they have failed to implement all clauses of the peace agreement they signed in September last year. The implementation of the agreement was to be followed by the formation of the government on the 12th of this month. Machar and Kir have promised to form the government in the first week of February next year. The delay to form the government has angered the United States, one of the countries that have been pushing for peace to prevail in South Sudan. Now, the United States says it will re-evaluate its relations with South Sudan. Abraham Kuol, one of the political and military experts based in South Sudan's capital, Yuba, has this comment on the United States saying it will review its relations with Africa's newest nation. When the U.S. government is saying that they are going to review the relation with the government of Juba or government of South Sudan, it means that they are going to use their funding power to be able to give government pressure, to be able to get into the demand of trying to compromise their position. Explaining briefly on the strong message that the United States government is sending to the authorities in South Sudan, Abraham Kual said, If you are not listening to our voice, then there is possibility of the U.S. government through the civil society organization, create a long and and serious activism among the people of South Sudan population. The people of South Sudan are only knowing that their life is depending on the donation from the international community. That was Abraham Kual, one of the political and military experts on South Sudan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Now, former South African National Defense Force member Muzamani Maswangani has called on the Constitutional Court to order the National Force to reinstate him. Maswangani was dismissed from the military in 2014 after he was convicted of a rape and sentenced to life imprisonment. He then successfully appealed the conviction and sentence in 2015, which were subsequently set aside. However, the Sandef has refused to reinstate him. It argued that the termination of his service was in line with the Defense Act, which did not provide for reinstatement, and that his position had been filled before the finalization of his appeal. Sachin Naidu reports. 
Former military private Mozamani Maswangani has asked the Constitutional Court to instruct the SANDF to reinstate him after he was acquitted of rape. He has argued that due to his conviction being overturned, he has the right to return to his position of private at the SANDF. The South African National Defense Union's Piki Khrif says because Maswangani was dismissed as a result of a wrongful conviction, he must be reappointed. Well, we want to see that a soldier who was wrongfully convicted and imprisoned and for which that imprisonment was then overturned as well as the conviction, that such a person uh, could get back his job in in the South African National Defence Force uh, because of the fact that he was priorly dismissed because of a wrongful conviction. So we would simply like to see his position in the Defence Force restored and, of course, it's, it's a principle to all members in uniform. However, the SANDF says they aren't in a position to reinstate him on the grounds that his position was already filled after he was found guilty of rape. They submitted that his service was terminated by operation of law in terms of Section 9 of the Defence Act, which did not provide for reinstatement. Legal counsel for the SANDF, Advocate Tembeka Skosana, also argued that there are many other factors that also have to be taken into consideration. If there's a discharge that has occurred, then all the, uh, uh, the statutes, similar statutes, such as Section 59.3, the, the Education Act, and all of them that where the termination occurs by operation of law, they would require a process thereafter, a decision-making process, because there are considerations to be taken into account by the employer. Naturally, once the the termination has occurred, before reinstatement, the employer must apply his mind whether the the position is still available, there's budget and, 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 and everything else that one can take into account. Judgment has been reserved. Sasha Naidu, SABC News, Johannesburg. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Now it is 14 minutes after 5 Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest with me, Kumbero Munjerere, here on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Now polls opened today for Ethiopia's Sidama people to vote on self-determination in a referendum closely watched by other ethnic groups that are also seeking more autonomy. The special vote for the Sidama, mostly based in the south and comprising about 4% of Ethiopia's 105 million people comes ahead of a general election next year. The vote comes after more than 10 people died in clashes in July uh, between security forces and Sidama activists after the government delayed the poll by five months. Well, for an update on uh, the vote, we are joined on the line by uh, Ethiopian correspondent Coletta Wanjohi. Uh, She's joining us uh, from the capital Addis Ababa. Good afternoon, Coletta, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. 
Now, the vote comes after more than uh, 10 people died in clashes in July between security forces and Sidama activists after the government uh, delayed the poll by five months. Uh, what update uh, do you have in terms of how the vote went today? Well, uh, the, the poll should be closing, uh, the polling session should be closing any minute from now because it, they were supposed to vote from uh, 6 a.m. up to 6 p.m. So we're in Addis Ababa, it's already 6 p.m., so the poll should be closing. But uh, the turnout was impressive because the National Electoral Board said 2.3 million people had registered to vote as of Monday. And we saw as early in the morning at 6 a.m. our time, uh, which was supposed to be 5 a.m. South African time, all uh, women came out, very old women came out with their voters' card ready to, to register. And that tells us that there were very people, there were people from different generations, older generations who had wanted this for a long time. But so far, there have been no cases that have been reported of violence. It has gone very, uh, very well. And we've seen the Prime Minister also tweeting and saying that he is happy that uh, the Sidama people have been given a chance to voice out their concerns and to really do that by the ballot, by the constitutional requirements. Sure. And he said that he hopes that things remain safe like that. So we're just waiting for preliminary results that should be out in like two days. Now, do we know how many uh, residents of Sidama were registered to vote? Yes, uh, over 2 million, 2.3 million actually, uh, if we go by the, the, the statistics of the National Electoral Board of Ethiopia. Now, whether all those 2.3 million cast their votes will be known to us once uh, the, the first preliminary results are given out. But at the moment, the turnout, was, the turnout was encouraging. And we also saw people from Sidama and also from other regions who are not from Sidama going on social media, going on different media, encouraging the people of Sidama and telling them to go ahead and get it. But remember, this will also bring another challenge because there are over uh, 10 other ethnic regions, uh, ethnic groups within the same region that have wanted to secede from the, from the southern region. So it's a, a matter of wait and see, but the turnout was really encouraging. Now, you are talking to us, uh, Coletta, from the capital, Addis Ababa. Uh, What is the general sentiment in Addis Ababa with regards to this vote? Well, within Addis Ababa, if we we follow uh, the different uh, analysts and different uh, citizens speaking on different media and also speaking out, they are kind of excited that the Sidama people have been given a chance because they know the Sidama people have been waiting for this for over three decades. So they are happy that they have been given a chance. But also for other people, they are looking at it as a way of democratization coming into the country because uh, they see that then it will be easier for them to speak out their mind and not be uh, criticized for doing that as was in the past. So it's an encouragement to many people uh, here in Addis Ababa, and they are looking at Sidama and hoping that violence does not really uh, break out. And also uh, also other experts are saying that it is a testing time for Ethiopia because we know the general elections will be coming in 2020. So how Sidama goes will really reflect on how the general elections will also go. And just finally, do we know if uh, the electoral board has um, said anything yet with regards to the way how the vote uh, was conducted today? So far, the electoral board has said uh, that as as of the close of the polls, which is uh, just a few minutes, uh, so far, everything has gone well. No violence has been reported. The turn-up has been encouraging. And people were, were, were peaceful in their voting. So they are waiting to probably collect the results because there are some places that are really remote where they need to, to really make sure that they collect all the results from there and we shall be able to know at least get something within a day or two. But so far, all has gone well. 
All right, uh, that's uh, Coletta Wanjohi, our Ethiopian correspondent on the line from the capital, Addis Ababa. Thank you so much for talking to us, Coletta. Thank you. All right, uh, as uh, I said, uh, that's Coletta Wanjohi there on the line from the capital, Addis Ababa. Uh, coming up shortly, I uh, will talk to William Davison, senior researcher on Ethiopia at the International Crisis Group. We are going to be uh, talking about uh, the Sidama vote uh, that um, we have been talking about uh, just a moment ago with uh, Coletta Wanjohi. Um, stay with us. I uh, will be back after this. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, It's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubung, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. It is 22 minutes after 5 Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest with me, Kumbaru Mujerere, here on Channel Africa um, from an African perspective. Now, to discuss... Yes, I am ready for you. Well, to discuss uh, the Sidama referendum further, we are joined on the line by William Davison. He is a senior analyst with the Inter... Yes, well, we seem to be having a problem with that line. Uh, we are going to come back to him after after this. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, It's an honor to be here. 
Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. It is uh, 23 minutes after five. Uh, well, we seem to be having a problem with uh, that line there uh, for uh, William Davison, the senior analyst with the International Crisis Group. As soon as we establish contact, we will um, uh, come back to that interview. The South African Revenue Service, SARS, says currently it does not have the required capacity to combat the illicit trade of cigarettes and tobacco. SARS officials briefed Parliament's Standing Committee on Finance on the state of the trade. Over a seven-month period, the entity has seized illegal goods valued at over $2 million U.S. dollars. Zelin Merrington has more. From April to October this year, the Revenue Service has opened more than 300 cases with law enforcement agencies. Acting Chief Executive Officer Intikab Sheikh explains. We've had 306 seizures uh, across the country, uh, amounting to 44 million sticks of cigarettes, uh, which equates to around 40 million rand in value. And there was about 23 seizures of tobacco, raw tobacco, uh, amounting to 11 tons, uh, with a value of 77,000 rand. But MPs did not think this return was good enough. I saw a rise in smoking by the youngsters. And when I asked a person who's owning that tax shop, told me that he no longer sells any of these legal brands because he's not making money. For one stick of, like, uh, Stavisant, he will charge 260 more or less. And for this illicit cigarette, it's 60 cents. South Africa consumes about 30 billion cigarettes a year, is that correct? So seizing 45 million is 0.15 of 1% of the trade. Now there's no way that that is even scratching the surface. Sheikh admits that SARS currently lacks the capacity to fight this crime. While we can all speak anecdotally about how many cigarettes are being smuggled, etc., etc., you'll never know. Because if you knew who was smuggling and where they were smuggling and why, or when they were smuggling, you would just catch them. We have certainly not turned the corner, but we, we're seeing that we're on the right path to recovery, uh, if, if we look at the figures, yeah? The chairperson of the committee, Joseph Maswangani, says much stronger policing is needed. Counterfeit goods are flooding South Africa. I mean, they are all over the street. You can't even walk in the street in, in any town today. The pavement is full of counterfeit goods. Everybody can see it. And nothing is done. It's business as usual. I'm an actress. I'm a motivational speaker. Born with albinism. Um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happened now. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, 
Monday 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Bule Mulebazi, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLeg to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9, and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It is half past five Central African time. It is uh, now time for the news headlines with Onele. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A Somali activist and ex-diplomat has been assassinated in Mogadishu. At least 12 people have been killed when rebels attack the town of Bini in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the leader of Zimbabwe's opposition, MDC party, Nelson Chamisa, describes the beating of his supporters by police in the capital Harare as the behavior of a collapsing regime. Channel African News, I'm Onelinsinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Now, thank you, Onele. It is uh, 29 minutes to 6 Central African time. You are listening to Africa Digest with me, Kumbara Mujerere, here on Channel Africa. 
Now, World Children's Day is commemorated globally on the 20th of November with a series of events led by the UN Child Agency, UNICEF. This year's commemoration is particularly significant as it is also as it also marks exactly 30 years since the adoption of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The convention is the most ratified human rights instrument in history and the first document of its kind to be signed by the new democratic government of South Africa 25 years ago. Well, for more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by UNICEF's Sudeshana Reddy. Good evening, Sudeshan, and welcome to Africa Digest. Good evening, and thank you for this opportunity, and happy World Children's Day to all the listeners. Sure. Now, first of all, let's reflect on the world's uh, achievements in advancing the rights of the child. Sudeshana, how far have we come? I think we've come much further than we sometimes realize. Uh, when the convention was adopted in 1989, and when we compare statistics to today, we see that the global under five mortality rate, in other words, the number of children that were dying under five years old, has fallen by 60%. That means 60% more children are living uh, uh, up to the age of five than was the case 30 years ago. Sure. The proportion of primary school age children not in school decreased from 20% to 10%. And also, I think we have a much greater understanding in South Africa and globally about the rights of children, that children are fundamental human beings with special rights as well. And the CRC was the first international document that looked at them in that way, uh, as people with special and uh, rights and circumstances. Now, UNICEF, uh, as a child agency, is present in many humanitarian settings across the world, uh, responding to the challenges on the ground. Given the dire need of aid and assistance in countries such as war-torn Syria and Yemen, Yemen, or politically unstable South Sudan and Bangladesh, which is dealing with the Rohingya refugee crisis, what impression do you get about the state of the world's uh, children uh, today? Uh, Look, it's a valid question. I've told you the successes, but I think the reality is there are millions of children that uh, are still living in very difficult positions. Um, You know, globally, children from the poorest households are twice as likely to die from preventable causes before their fifth birthday than children from the richest households. In sub-Saharan Africa, only half of the children from the poorest households are vaccinated against measles. In the rich world, it's 85% of children. So the point is that there are real challenges. There are the numerous wars, conflicts, refugees, uh, situations. But, you know, at the same time, as has always been the case, there are gains and there are pluses. So we're dealing with a difficult situation. UNICEF works, as you said, in 193 countries. We're everywhere where we need to be. And uh, our role is major. And, and, and all humanitarian organizations. You know, people underestimate what a big role they play. And I'm glad you listed those particular countries because that's where UNICEF and other organizations are working on the ground. It's definitely a very worrying situation. 
Now, we have a country like South Africa with a progressive constitution where the rights of all are enshrined, but we have situations where children go to schools that have uh, um, pit latrines and disturbing uh, statistics of child abuse, kidnappings and killings, uh, which begs the question, Sudeshan, to what extent is the Convention of the Rights of the Child really working for the country? Look, uh, it can only work as long as there is political will and people to implement what it, what it suggests. The convention is there as a guide. It's an aspiration. It's a guide. It's what we need to do. So in many ways, South Africa has met the convention fully. The number of children in primary school in this country is among the highest on the continent, if not the highest. Um, you know, there are many, many gains that have been made post-apartheid South Africa, but agreed, there are also a lot of challenges. Children falling into pit latrines should not be happening in 2019. Sure. So UNICEF works very closely with the Department of Basic Education. We're working with corporate funders, and we're looking at how we can work with the department to fund the provision of um, facilities where necessary, but also to advise governments to work with our government partners on what can work and what may not work and how can we deal with the situation. What is remarkable is that in South Africa, as a democracy, these issues are openly aired. Government, I believe, remains committed to resolving it. So these are not things that we can't speak about. And, uh, and we're working very closely to ensure that these things become something of the past. And just finally, talk to us about uh, today's parliamentary session in commemoration of World Children's Day. Who was involved and what came out of it as a way forward? A very exciting session was held within National Parliament in Cape Town this morning with learners from all nine provinces of South Africa, selected by programs of the Department of Social Development. And they worked on what's called a children's manifesto earlier this year. And what they did was they addressed the portfolio committees of parliament and said, these are the issues we're dealing with. These are the challenges we face. How can you help us and make sure we get involved? Because World Children's Day is not about speaking to children, and they reminded us of this. It's about speaking with children and co-creating solutions. Because what these young people did this morning was come up with a very tangible idea and how things can improve in their community. From teenage pregnancy to HIV to criminal violence to substance abuse, they spoke about their experiences openly to the policymakers of South Africa, and they were heard. And that was pretty inspiring to listen to today. All right, uh, Sudeshan Arwedi of uh, the United Nations Children's Fund in South Africa. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Much appreciated. Thank you for this opportunity, and again, a happy World Children's Day. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. 
Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. When I think back to my childhood, Geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning. All right, uh, now polls opened uh, today for Ethiopia's Sidama people to vote uh, on self-determination in a referendum closely watched by other ethnic groups that are also seeking uh, more autonomy. The special vote for the Sidama, mostly based in the south and um, comprising about 14, uh, 4% of Ethiopia's 105 million people, comes ahead of a general election next year. Well, to give us uh, some analysis on uh, this vote, we are joined on the line by William Davison. He is a senior analyst with the International Crisis Group. Thank you so much for joining us, William. Hello, William. Hello, William. Well, we seem to be having a problem with that um, line once again. We will come back to that story once uh, we establish contact. Now, if you had an opportunity to speak to your younger self, what exactly would you say? Well, that is the task that three activists have taken on through a documentary series with Global Movement One. Benin Republic's Dr. Joani Marlene Bewa, Nigeria's Wadi Ben Hikri, and South Africa's Melina Rousseau are all making a notable contribution to fast-tracking gender equality on the continent. Rousseau is the founder of the Women Lead Movement, an organization which seeks to educate, empower, and uh, inspire women to lead social change in their communities. She is an admitted attorney by the High Court in South Africa, a 2018 Obama Foundation leader, and she also holds a Master of Laws degree with a specialization in public and constitutional law, and she elaborates. My passion for human rights began when I was at the university and it sort of deepened during my time working as a law researcher at the Constitutional Court of South Africa. Um, I also decided later on when I left the court to write my thesis on the aspect of public participation, arguing that public participation is indeed a fundamental human right and that governments across the African continent, across the globe, Mm. must meaningfully engage the public in most, if not all, the decisions, um, especially those decisions sort of have a direct impact on the lives of people. Mm. But in my research, I found that that was actually not happening, not only in South Africa, but across the African continent. Um, And in my research, I also 
discovered that our people do not know what their basic human rights are and their responsibilities. And in South Africa in particular, between 49 and 50% of our population don't know about the Constitution. Mm. And even if they've heard about the Constitution, they have no idea what it contains. Um, I mean, some of the people that I've engaged with do not even know what the real meaning or the depth of democracy is, which Mm. is troublesome. And I know that sounds bizarre, but it is a fact. People understand democracy to mean voting only. Mm. Um, and this speaks to the sort of representative pillar of democracy, but not democracy as a participatory pillar. Um, and this is not talked about extensively, um, whether by government or by the mm-hmm. people. And that, that actually led me to, mm. to wanting to use my knowledge and my experience to just educate people. I really sure. just want to educate people about their human rights. And by people, I'm talking about the people in local communities, in townships, mm. in rural areas. And I wanted to tell them what democracy means. And I wanted to teach them, uh, you know, what they can expect from their government. Mm. Um, and I wanted them to know that they have a right to have their voices heard beyond the ballot box. Mm. So now well, this that, is where it comes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your work has uh, certainly been quite notable in, in that space and quite impactful for those um, who've had the opportunity to um, get yeah. some sort of training with the Women Lead Movement. Now, Malene, I had an opportunity to watch your episode of uh, the three-part Hashtag Yours and Power campaign. Now, that's a docu-series with the One Movement. Tell us a little bit about um, the campaign in itself and why it was so important uh, for you to um, share your very moving story um, as part of this campaign. Thank you very much, uh, Zakona. Uh, just to give you a little background about how I started to get to work with the One Campaign, actually, you know. So they contacted me in January already with the first major campaign, which was Progress, Not Promises. And obviously that is self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. government makes a whole lot of promises to the people, especially around gender equality, but they do not give the resources, whether human capital, whether financial resources, to back the promises that they sure. make on these platforms. So that was the initial one. We wrote a letter, an open letter to the world leaders, and that letter was handed over to them at the G7 summit, where we say, listen here, enough is enough. You now need to put, you know, you, uh, uh, the resources to these promises, etc. Um, and that letter actually got support signatures of over 150,000 people across the world. All right, uh, it's uh, 16 minutes uh, to 6 Central African time. Uh, it is now time for your economic news with Nosihe Zuma. Good evening. South African trade unions NUMSA and SACA say they will intensify their strike action for negotiations with SAA management failed yesterday. SACA says SAA management made a U-turn after they had reached an agreement to pay workers a 6.5% wage increase. The workers initially demanded an 8% salary increase. Workers down tools last week Friday. SAA says it cannot afford more than 5.9%. The union will brief the media outside the headquarters in Kempton Park, east of Johannesburg. Saka's president, Zazin Sibanyoni Mugambi, had this to say. We were at a 6.5 with management when late into the night, around 12 o'clock, SAA did a 360 and removed that from the table. Furthermore, we were not asking for blanket increases. We had provided a clear framework as to how they can fund this particular increases. But it seems that they are not interested in doing that. So the question is why? And we're not saying give it to us now. We're saying let's implement these changes. 
Sudan needs urgent reforms and budget support of about 5 billion US dollars to avoid an economic an economic collapse. The finance ministry thinks the country is facing fierce criticism from the population who denounce appalling economic conditions as the nation remains stuck in a serious crisis. South African South Africa's Auditor General Kimi Magwedu says none of the state-owned entities SOEs has obtained a clean audit in the 2018-2019 financial year. Magwedu was briefing the media in Parliament on the audit outcomes of government departments and SOEs. He says is altogether the SOEs have incurred about some millions of dollars in regular expenditure. The issue I think for us with regards to the state-owned entities is also the instances of irregular expenditure. It's quite a number of them that failed to achieve a clean audit on the back of uh, irregular expenditure. In essence, for them, this is about 1.4 billion of the total irregular expenditure is associated with some of these SOEs. The likes of Denel, South African Broadcasting Corporation, SA Express, as a forestry company. These ones were largely qualified on the basis that they were not able to prove that they have disclosed everything associated with their irregular expenditure. And Zambia's central bank has raised the country's benchmark lending rate by 125 basis point to 11.5%, citing rising consumer price inflation and the need to restore microeconomic stability. Bank Governor Deni Kalkiaya says if action is not taken, inflation will remain outside the target range. Zambia's consumer price index rose to 10.7% year-on-year in October from 10.5% in September. Looking at your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at uh, 360.63 Nigerian Nara, 10.73 Buzona Bula, at 100 Kenyan shillings, 62 cents, and at 13.93 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.20 Brazilian ruble, 63.79 Russian ruble, 71.63 Indian rupee, 7.02 Chinese yuan, and at 14.77 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,469 and platinum at $895 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $62.27 a barrel. For Channel African News, I'm Nusikhe Zuma. All right, it's about 11 minutes to 6 Central African time. It is now time for some sports news with Neto Chemane. Thank you, Kumbelo, from the sports desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with rugby news. 
The Springboks will play Scotland and Georgia in home tests in July 2020. The world champions will play two tests against Scotland on July the 4th and the, and the 11th, before facing Georgia the following weekend on July the 18th. The venues and kickoff times will be announced at a later stage. It will be the Scot- it will be Scotland's first visit to South Africa since June 2014, when they were thumped 55-6 by the box in Port Elizabeth in the Eastern Cape province. Overall, the Springboks have won 22 tests against Scotland and lost 5. South Africa and Georgia have met only once before at the 2003 Rugby World Cup when the box won 46-19 in Sydney. The Springboks currently top the World Rugby rankings, while Scotland are 9th and Georgia 14th. New Zealander Dave Rennie has been tasked with leading Australia to the 2023 Rugby World Cup after being appointed Michael Chaker's replacement today in the wake of the Wallabies' Mickey quarterfinal exit from Japan. Rennie becomes the second New Zealander to take on the role following Robbie Dins and faces a stiff challenge to reverse the decline of Chaker's final years in charge and rebuild a fallen rugby power amid a period of transition. Chief Executive Rylan Castle was thrilled to have secured the man. She said he was always top of the governing body's shortlist. We did an extensive search of the market. We uh, did a lot of work once um, Michael had said that he uh, may not uh, seek to be reappointed uh, after earlier on the year. Um, we had to look at who we thought the best candidate were, uh, were, candidates were, and ultimately Dave was the outstanding candidate. We believe his ability to, not only his great coaching record, his ability to coach at every level uh, but also his cultural fit uh, is very important um, and also his ability to work inside the system. He, uh, we've put a new high performance structure and system in place and we need a coach that wanted to work inside that system. We've been in a significant fight to make sure we got his signature uh, and it was literally the contract was only signed uh, 24 hours ago uh, and you know we put our best foot forward uh, and he chose us. He chose this uh, organisation and this Wallaby team because he thinks he can be successful with it. Castle says with England's Australian coach Eddie Jones off limits, Rugby Australia saw no alternative but to target a foreign coach. Yeah, and I think that's a really fair question and and we looked really hard at the Australian options um, and there wasn't uh, one at this level that we uh, believed was available uh, to come into this role. Uh, It's something that we've identified um, as as an area that we need to spend more um, time focused on to grow and develop our young coaches coming through. Uh, and that's what we're doing and that's one of Jono's major mandates over the next four years to make sure we've got those options in place. Uh, we had some discussions with Eddie uh, b- uh, behind you know, the scenes but ultimately he was contracted to England and he had a very tight contract with England um, and that ruled him out from our um, discussions. In football news, the defending champions of South Africa go into the 2019 Kosafa Men's Under-20 Championships among the, favor- as among the favorites again. The tournament takes place from the 4th to the 14th of December in Lusaka, Zambia. The regional championship has been played annually for the last three years after having taken a break in and at that time Amajita have been the standout competitors. They have lifted the trophy on the last two occasions and also re- 
reached the final in 2016 where they lost out to Zambia. Amajita has played 14 matches and have won 12 of those fixtures, only losing out to Zambia in the 2016 decider on home soil. In the tournament, they have netted an impressive 35 goals and considered only five times. Finally, in cricket news, Deben hit captain Dane Velas is expecting a closely fought affair between his side and the Tonis Buttons when the two lock horns in their latest Mzanzi Super League MSL outing in Centurion tomorrow. Both the teams had their opening two matches washed out before encountering mixed results at the weekend. The Heat lost to Cape Town's Blitz by 10 runs in Durban, while the Spartans enjoyed an eight-weekend win over the Pal Rocks in the Bowland. Villas is confident in their prospects ahead of the game at Supersport Park. Yeah, it's still very early, it's still fresh for us. Um, you know, we've got games we want to get into a nice role, hopefully. Um, We'll be tackling there in a similar position as us. They, both teams need a, a good result, um, and I know they, they are a very good side. We've, you know, we had that rain night game against, and we did a bit of homework uh, on them. But just looking at their depth, they could be a good side. But you know, we feel pretty confident, and hope we can put on a good shot. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto Neto Chamani. This is Africa Digest. A recapping our top stories this hour, the United States donates $92 million to the World Food Program to purchase food for more than 7 million people facing starvation in South Sudan. Polls opened today for Ethiopia's Sidama people to vote on self-determination in a referendum closely watched by other ethnic groups that are also seeking more autonomy. And that wraps up Africa Digest this hour. We are back in an hour at 1900 Central African time. For comments on the show, you can send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, taking us to the top of the hour, here is Africa, Africa by Jimmy Glugu.